G'day, I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to the Doctor Who Show, where, Dave, we're meeting up before our regular end-of-month episode because uh, Terence Dix has passed away. Yeah, very, very sad news, and I think if anything is worthy of us coming together and having a bit of a chat, um, you know, out of out of the, the normal time period and there's a bit of a special, I think it's it's this. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, I think there are very few people we would actually do this kind of special for, probably all of the Doctors, Terence, yep. obviously, because we're here now, but not, not everyone. He, he was a very special man. He was a very special man and the outpouring of grief and, and, and sentiment and, and love for Terence that we've seen literally across the world on social media has been absolutely extraordinary and 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 wonderful in a certain way and you know sad in another yeah of course we're going to play uh in a moment our special feature that we did on terence earlier this year but we thought we'd top and tail it with some some new thoughts and some current thoughts and i guess i want to ask you dave because we haven't really spoken about this before turning on the mics here where were you when you heard this news it was literally the very first thing uh, that I did that morning. I, I, I woke up ridiculously early at about 5am or something for no apparent reason and did what I always do, went and checked the phone to just check Twitter and see what had happened in the world overnight. And the first two or three tweets were uh, uh, people uh, eulogising Terrence, yeah. which meant that it, fortunately in some ways it wasn't one of those things where you see somebody mention somebody's death and you're like oh hang on i better make sure this is correct is it official mm. there were so many eulogies and so many official websites had it on it was clear instantly what had happened and that really set the tone for the day i literally across the day it was just friends or people i know or people i follow on social media mm. eulogizing terence yeah and very similar for me too i i get up quite early for work uh, again looked at twitter and, and saw the news and what what was interesting i guess was that he had actually passed away several days earlier on the 29th of august and i guess the family had withheld it for several days before releasing it because uh, we certainly saw it as, as soon as it was released was within hours of it being released but um he had passed away in late august oh i hadn't realized that okay yeah yeah, so uh, Terence Dix, 14th of April 1935 to the 29th of August 2019, uh, 84 years old. And gosh, I, I want to say gone too soon, but he did have quite a full life at the same time. He, he did have a very full life. I, I don't think you can really have any regrets about that. Yeah. Uh, of course, uh, some notable Doctor Who people have uh, eulogised him. Chris Chibnall uh, famously doesn't say a lot while he's making a new series, but did come out. Uh, to say the lights of Doctor Who are dimmer tonight with the passing of Terence Dix. He was one of the greatest contributors to Doctor Who's history on screen and off. As a writer and script editor, he was responsible for some of the show's greatest moments and iconic creations. As the most prolific and brilliant adapter of Doctor Who stories into target novels, he was responsible for a range of books that taught a generation of children, myself included, how pleasurable and accessible and thrilling reading could be. Doctor Who was lucky to have his talents. He will always be a legend of the show. Everyone working on Doctor Who sends his family and friends our love and condolences at this difficult time. Very sound words. 
Absolutely. And I've got a couple more here that I just picked out at random and I think they show quite a spread of uh, emotions. So next we have Neil Gaiman. He says, I remember reading his and Malcolm Hulk's book, The Making of Doctor Who, when I was 11 or 12 and deciding that I would one day write an episode of Doctor Who because they had shown me how. Rest in peace, Terence Dix. Wow, that's quite an influence. Yeah, that's got to be a good one for you too, Dave. I think you like that Making of Doctor Who book as well. Yeah, absolutely, yes. <laughs> uh, a couple more. Uh, the author, Jenny Coglin, she writes as J.T. Coglin, uh, said, Like many children's authors, he was wildly undervalued despite being a key ingredient in a lifelong love of reading, particularly among boys. He received almost no official recognition whatsoever. Um, he claimed to be no stylist, but his short chapters, clear sentences, and ability to get to the point extremely quickly influenced a generation of writers. When I met him as a new Doctor Who novelist, he looked at me and asked sternly if I was planning to sex up Doctor Who, as there were very few female Doctor Who writers then. Yes, I said, I'm calling it Fifty Shades of Gallifrey. After that, I think we were friends. That's <laughs> a funny little story, but it's a very true point that he certainly didn't get the recognition he deserved and one of my abiding memories like like most people i mean we, mm. we all we all have as doctor who fans the the story of the terran sticks novelizations being a big part of us learning to read or practicing our reading and you know i, I certainly remember the first proper novel that i read was the dalek invasion of earth and how many novels i either had read to me as a kid when i was very young or then read myself in primary school and onwards mm. But yet, given how many of his books were in my junior school library, the the almost sort of uh, dismissal with which they uh, the, the the teachers and the library staff sort of treated them and and others treated them like you know the, this huge contribution to to children's and young adult literature yeah and it was it was sort of like oh well that's that's just Doctor Who mm. yeah it, it is a shame. Uh, I'm going to round this off with uh, something from Rob Shearman. He wrote quite a lengthy piece on Facebook, and obviously I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it boiled down to him meeting Terence Dix as a, as a young guy, I think about 14 years old, and he had a stutter at the time, or a stammer. And so we pick up the story, him saying, uh, of their conversation, the one time he alluded to my stammer was when I got it out that I wanted to be a writer someday, just like he was. And he smiled and said, that's the problem we writers have. There are so many words in our heads, it's sometimes hard to get them all out. He called me a writer, and I did become a writer. I ended up on Doctor Who, the same series that decades before he had shaped and finessed and cared for. And Stammer beaten, mostly. I met him at many conventions over the years, but I never got around to telling him that as a shy 14-year-old, I had been so inspired by him, not only to write, but not to feel ashamed of my speech impediment. I saw that story as well, and... Uh, if anybody has the time, I strongly recommend you go to Twitter and look up Rob Shearman and find that full tweet thread because it is a really, really nice story in full and, and a wonderful testament to the, the spirit of, of Terence Dix. Oh, w without doubt. It's, it's just such a lovely thing to read. So, you know, throughout these, you know, brief eulogies I've, I've read out, uh, we see so many sides to him, the, the being kind to the young boy, um, getting stern with Jenny Coughlin and demanding if she was going to sex up Doctor Who. Um, you know, the books he wrote, like The Making of Doctor Who, which have been a Bible to so many people. And and his influence on the current showrunner of Doctor Who. I mean, it's, it's, it's all there in just these four little pieces I've read. 
Look, it really is. And I was sort of thinking on the drive home tonight as I was collecting my thoughts for this and knowing that this would you know, be attached to the, uh, the the special we did, and I don't want to repeat it, but, but we just sort of have to really make the point of just how much of the legend of Doctor Who Terrence Dix really was responsible for. I mean, on his watch, they created the third Doctor, the fourth Doctor, mm-hmm. most of the unit family, the Master. Yeah. Um, he introduced to the show Robert Holmes, Malcolm Hulk, mm-hmm. Don Horton, Bob Baker and Dave Martin. Uh, you, you know, just so many things that really made Doctor Who as great as it was and, and cemented it from being just a nice little 60s TV show that maybe ran for four or five years to really being an institution. That, that really did happen on Terence's watch. Not alone. He had Barry Letts and he had Philip Hinchcliffe taking over and all that. But... but mm. You know, at the time when Doctor Who really became the institution that it was, and in, in that real golden period, the Let's Hinchcliffe era, Dix was there either script editing or writing, no doubt advising on the casting. He, his influence was phenomenal, as was his ability to write for any Doctor in any period. He was as comfortable writing for Patrick Trout in The War Games in 1969 as he was writing for... Paul McGann in a novel, or Sylvester McCoy in a 90s novel, or whatever the case may be. He was able to do it all. Yeah, absolutely correct. Uh, he was there at such an important time in the show's history, and, you know, maybe uh, a lesser person there might have dropped the ball. Uh, who knows? And, yeah, ab- absolutely. And there was a comment earlier about, you know, he, he was always very self-deprecating about his writing ability, but how many people have uttered at some point in their lives as Doctor Who fans the phrase... Well, I first read the Target novel, and that was amazing. Mm-hmm. We very rarely include in that sentence, we first read the Target novel by Terence Dix, but most of them were, and we all remember them as being amazing, wonderful stories that, that created images in the mind, and he was a very talented writer. Yeah. Oh, with, without doubt, that ability to write those wonderful short sentences, the descriptions... It's almost Hemingway-esque. That, that's how Ernest Hemingway used to write, you know, just mm. very short and to the point. Uh, it's almost a journalistic style. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying he's, he's, he writes exactly like Hemingway, but there are, there are elements of that there. And that's, that's, that's a really genius sort of writing style if you can pull it off. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Dave, you're, you're talking earlier about, you know, just the, the volume of, of stuff he wrote. And I think there's at least 60, maybe even 70 Target novels out there with his name on them. And I dare say I've read them all. I can't think of any other author where I've read 60 plus novels by them. I can't think of many authors I know who have written 60 plus novels. No. You know, I mean, w- one comes to mind, maybe Bernard Cornwell, he wrote the Sharp series and some other stuff. So maybe he's, there's 20 Sharp books and maybe a dozen others. That's still only half of Terence's output. And after Bernard Cornwell, I can't think of anyone. You know, uh, Terry Pratchett maybe, but I haven't read most of the Discworld novels. So it's like Terence Dick's first, Daylight second when it comes to, to novelizations. Yeah, look, maybe somebody who did a few of those pulp romance novels. I mean, like a Barbara Cartland maybe would, be, would come close. But um, mm. yeah, there'd be very, very few. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so look, a final point I just had, Rob, and I do talk about this more in the special, but they always say in life, don't meet your heroes. Mm-hmm. And I can certainly think of a few people from the world of Doctor Who that maybe it would be better if I hadn't met them. <laughs> but, you know, Terence Dix was certainly not one of those. And I'm phenomenally glad now that he's he's gone 
that I did have the chance to meet him just for a few short minutes when I got an autograph and after watching his wonderful panel presentation at the convention down here. But very, very glad because he was a genuinely fun, nice, warm guy to, to meet. And so I really am very glad that I had the chance to meet someone who has been a big part of my, my childhood and, let's face it, our adulthood as well. Oh, absolutely. And that, that story does pop up on the special. So listeners, you're in for a bit of a treat when that comes up. Uh, look, without any further ado, let, let's rip into the special. I've chopped away, I think, the first minute or two, Dave, and we just launched straight into you talking about uh, Terence Dixon, Doctor Who. And uh, let's come back after the special and uh, close out with a few words, eh? Absolutely. Let's go. So we're going to go through Terence's involvement with Doctor Who. Uh, look, we could talk about his involvement outside of Doctor Who, but in the space we've got, even just a brief overview of Doctor Who's going to be a struggle. Oh, yeah. Look him up on YouTube. Uh, not on YouTube, on Wikipedia, I'm sorry. And, and just look at his non-Doctor Who work. He has written so much stuff. It's incredible. Yes, and produced stuff and script edited stuff. And yeah, an amazingly prodigious career. Amazingly successful. Yeah. But he did start off in Doctor Who back in the Troughton era. And as the as he calls it, uncredited, barely paid deputy assistant script editor. <laughs> These are the pictures you see in, in Doctor Who reference books where he's there. He looks like a young Paul McCartney to me, Dave. He's got the, the moustache, the Sergeant Pepper's moustache and a bowl cut haircut. And he's quite young and fit. He, he looks like one of the Beatles in these pictures. Yeah, he's very much of his time, often smoking the pipe. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, just this, this writer who'd been involved with script writing, particularly on soaps, doing advertising work, but then he finds himself in the Doctor Who office. Now, I'm going to reference a few times in this chat, Rob, the time when I saw Terence Dixon and, and met him and saw him interviewed at a convention out here. Oh, brilliant. And, and one of the things that he said when asked about his time in that office was he said just how dysfunctional he actually found this office. Now, unprofessional, he found this office. He, he was he as a young, inspired, up-and-coming, you know, wanting to make his mark writer. Mm. And he sort of found all the old guard of the BBC going to lunch at 12 o'clock at the pub and sort of not coming back till four. Mm. And, 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 you know, really sort of seeing Doctor Who as a bit of a tired series in some ways until he starts to form that relationship with Derek Sherwin and and get more involved. But of course, famously, this is the time when Terence discovered Robert Holmes. Yes. Now, it's just interesting to talk of it as a tired old series, because I guess at this point, what, it's it's six years old or so. It's doing its sixth series, yeah. Yeah, and they'd be looking at that and comparing it to other shows, I guess, that were out there and thinking, God, this has been dragging on a bit, hasn't it? <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, I'm not, not going to make my career here. You know, just Let's just get it turned in, you know turn the thing out and, and let's go to lunch sort of thing, yeah. Yeah. But it was that time where you had Bryant and Lloyd and Sherwin and Dix all sort of shuffling chairs and, and literally different producer-script-editor combinations on almost every season, almost every story of that season. I mean, it, it is a tumultuous time in the Doctor Who office. 
oh yeah, people think the start of the Davo era is interesting, you know, with with Bidmead in and Root and then Sayward. <laughs> but this 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 is much more beyond that with the way it chops and changes. Yeah, and and Terence really does make his mark on in that environment because. He is the up-and-coming, you know, up-and-thrusting writer. He discovers Robert Holmes and works out the Crotons as an emergency story, and then suddenly the prisoner in space embarrassment <laughs> falls apart. <laughs> and so they're making a story that he's basically commissioned and discovered. He has a large job effectively rewriting large parts of the Seeds of Death, and that works really well. And then suddenly they're turning to him and saying, ah, oh, we need 10 episodes to finish the series. We've got nothing. Terence here's a pen and a piece of paper come back with a story <laughs> and and famously he sits down with his old mentor mac hulk and puts together a cracking 10 episode story of the war games yeah god i mean what what a daunting task although conversely his novelization of it is wafer thin how does that work <laughs> <laughs> that is true but but yeah just to be told you know you, you can have one location filming shot you can have a couple of sets a limited number of actors it needs to be done by tomorrow. You know, we need to do, turn out episode one in a week. And by the way, you need to write out Patrick Trout and Fraser Hines and Wendy Padbury at the end of it. And we don't know who the new Doctor is, so could he leave it on a cliffhanger for us? <laughs> and on top of all that, he introduces the Time Lords. Uh, yes, and that's something we will be talking about. But mm. yeah, I, I think that it's important to remember that, you know, we think about Terrence Dix being very much part of the Let's Dix era, and of course he is, but... A lot of season six, particularly that back end, that doesn't happen without him. Oh, absolutely. You know, uh, as you say, it's an era where people do forget he was involved. I think just because his later work overshadows it. But uh, it can't be understated what he did here, particularly the war games. My God. Yeah, and, and look, Seeds of Death is one that I'm really fond of as well. And he pulled that together and, yeah, really important. But off the back of that, of course, he does become the script editor for Doctor Who for what we now know as the Pertwee era. Wasn't TV good in those days? You could just show up and bang out some stories and within a year <laughs> or two, you were the script editor for a series. Just wonderful. Well, and, and maybe again, it just shows where the BBC was at because rather than saying, okay, this is our flagship show and we need to go get our best talent to work on it, they're like, um, that, that young guy over there, he's, he's keen, isn't he? Do you want to be the script editor, Terence? Cool, you're hired. <laughs> You know, there, there really is that feeling. And, and, you know, famously, season seven could have been the last series. Yeah. But, you know, that, that sort of vibe is continuing, I think, when Andrew Cartmel takes over. It's like, oh, you're a young <laughs> up-and-coming guy. Do you want to have a go? Sure, yeah. why not? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really effective. Yeah. And it's really, really positive. But what I want to talk about in this, this little bit here is famously, I mean, I mean, Terence is a wonderful raconteur. He, he's been interviewed on many DVDs and in many mm. articles. He, and and, and he, he loves chatting about his time, and as does Barry Letts. But he, he, he consistently says when he's asked about the Pertwee year, he says, well, we started off with the show that Derek Sherwin wanted to make, and Derek had a lot of very strong ideas, all of them bad. <laughs> I love the way he talks. I, yeah, he's such a wonderful storyteller, and he's clearly exaggerating for humorous effect. Yes. But Terence was not a fan of Let's Exile the Doctor to Earth. He was not a fan of Let's Introduce Unit. Although he respected and liked Carol and John, he was not a fan of the Liz Shaw character. Mm. Yet, yet, he turns out four fantastically good stories anyway. Well, that's the mark of a professional, isn't it? It, it is, and... and one of the things that I think is really interesting with a script editor is looking at the team of writers that they put together. Mm. Cartmel, 
I think the biggest thing and the best thing he ever did for Doctor Who was his ability to take a very empty cupboard and find Stephen Wyatt, Rona Munro, Ben Aronovich, uh, Ian Briggs, you know, yeah. wonderful writers and um, bring them together and, and actually create a, a, a way, in a way that someone like Eric Saywood I don't think ever really achieved. You know, you don't, you don't look at the writers that Eric Saywood brought into Doctor Who and go, wow, what a collection. No, not at all. Whereas Terence, I mean, the first thing he does is he gets Robert Holmes back, and that's a brilliant decision. He gets Mac Hulk back regularly, brilliant decision. He, he, he brings Don Horton in to write for the series. He gets David Whittaker back. Mm. Like, like, if you're going to write, if you've, got, if you've got four slots to fill in the season, Holmes, Hulk, Whittaker, and Horton, that's a pretty good lineup. It's hard to top. Yeah, and, and then, you know, he brings the Bristol boys um, in as regular contributors to Doctor Who. And look, I, I agree with some fans that their output is uh, a bit variable, but they're very, very solid writers. He, you know, he brings in a number of people, but he gets this reliable thing. Every year you're going to have a script by Robert Holmes and it'll be great. Yeah. Every year you'll have a script by Malcolm Hulk about giant lizards and it'll be great. You get a couple <laughs> of Don Hortons in there. You know, that It's just this wonderful... Um, Robert Sloman is brought into it and he works with Barry Letts. Yeah. He, Terrence Dix really creates this wonderful cast of writers that really sets the show up. And do you think, Dave creates a very stable era particularly after an era where he said you know it was a bit of a shambles oh without doubt i mean he's the script editor for five years let's is the producer for five years they clearly up until let's death were still the best of friends and they clearly got on really well with john pertwee uh, they got on with katie manning when she was cast they, they really seem to have enjoyed doing this but yeah not stable behind the camera stable in front of the camera and it shows because the Pertwee era starts well, but it grows as an era. It just gets better and better. And there's so much good in it. And Pertwee cha- you know, evolves into the role and mm. the unit family grows up around them. And just yeah, this reliable television in a way that, look, I love the 60s, but reliable is not a word you'd use about that era of Doctor Who. No, no not at all. <laughs> but yes, as I said... You then see Terrence Dix going, okay, well, Derek Sherwin's laid down this track. I'm going to be professional, make the best of it. But then I'm going to start to turn it around and make the series that he and Barry Letts want to make. So Liz Shaw is out, Joe Grant is in. And and they basically create the Doctor Companion team that Mm. we still think of as being the definitive template of Doctor Who. Oh, without doubt. Yeah, yeah. We, We think about now the show as being the Doctor who travels with a young lady assistant. Mm-hmm. And, and that's sort of the template. It's broken from time to time, and they throw different things in there. But even when the new series is brought back, it's Christopher Eccleston and Billy Piper. It's Matt Smith and Karen Gillum. You know, they're, they're the combinations that you think about, and that's what we think about the series being. They, they really set that back up. They, they move it away from Earth. So in Season 8, you have one series where the TARDIS leaves Earth, and then in Series 9, you have a couple, and then in Series 10, he gets his dematerialization circuit back and they go off and have adventures again which is quite a change from the all of the 60s having two or three companions at any one time yeah it, it really is and and again they continue that when Kenny manning leaves with uh bringing liz sladen on yeah. and and again and this is something else that they do i mean look at who they cast in front of the camera okay they inherited john pertwee but they cast katie manning they cast liz sladen mm. they cast tom baker yeah. They, they cast Ian Marta. Yeah. yeah. yeah that, that That's a pretty impressive thing to be able to say you did. 
they invent the master. Yeah. It's they, such a strong era behind the camera with these yeah. guys. And, and behind the scenes as well, they're really developing Doctor Who lore. I think, I think that with the possible exception of David Whittaker, possibly, Terrence Dix is the first person who actually sits down and, although you wouldn't call it a showrunner's Bible like you would today, he actually has that thing of, okay, this is what Doctor Who's done in the past and this is who he's been in the past and this is what we know and then he starts to add to that. So we've now met the Time Lords and this is what the Time Lords do and, oh, they come from Gallifrey and they have a High Council and they mm. have regenerations and, oh, the, you know, we, we, we have the idea that the Doctor has a mentor and then in his final episode we meet his mentor all of this sort of stuff laid out and for the first time there's a real vision of the show as a cohesive narrative absolutely and although the time lords will get you know changed around a bit you know famously by the time a deadly assassin they're portrayed in quite a different way to how they're first portrayed on screen just bringing in this concept of the Time Lords. It's hard for people, I guess, to grasp that for the first couple of Doctors, right until Troughton's last story, we didn't know he was a Time Lord. You know, mm. fan, viewers didn't know he was a Time Lord. I should say we weren't watching at the time, Dave. <laughs> no. Uh, but yeah, he's the first one that uses the words Time Lord in the script. He's the first one that takes them to the Doctor's home planet. Mm. Uh, it's it's in one of the shows that he script edits that, that Gallifrey is a word that he's first used. He you know, works with um, Bob Baker and Dave Martin creates Omega, Regeneration. I mean, he's the one that basically, with Barry Letts, sets up the rules for regeneration. Mm. Again, mm. something that we, we take for granted, but the word regeneration, I don't think he's used until Planet of the Spiders. No, the, the Doctor was certainly renewing himself, but it wasn't called regeneration on screen. Yeah. Yeah. And and at the same time, I mean, I mean, let's let's be honest here, Terran Sticks is fantastic, but Terran Sticks with Barry Letts is phenomenal. Oh, killer combo. Just fantastic. And, and I love listening to the stories that they tell about how they would sort of work with each other and with directors. So Terence would come in and he'd have to script edit and it was his job to make it cheaper to make. And then Barry would say, oh, wait on, well, we can afford to do this. Or a director would then go and say, well, we'll overspend here and we'll do this. And Terence is like, no, no, we have to bring it back. And and, mm. and they work together. And there's, there's one thing that I think Terence has said about that time that really struck me. And he was critiquing... Not in a nasty way, but just in an interesting way, the process of writing the show now, where he says that no writer's script gets better after two drafts. Yeah, very wise. And and so you know what he would do, he he would, he would discuss the story with a the writer. They'll they'll work out the basic blocks of it, and he would commission it. The writer would go away and write a first draft. He would then come in. He'd have a look. He'd call the writer in and go, "Okay, look, um, you've got too many sets, so." Uh, but let, you know, you, you say you want a meeting room and a communications room. Well, they can be the same room, and you have too many characters, so we'll, we'll, we'll merge those characters there. And uh, I think that it's a bit flabby in episode three, but there's not enough excitement in episode four. Uh, you know, all, all of those sort of things, they'll work it out. You can say, go away and do me another draft. Mm-hmm. And then the ride would come back with their best possible draft. And as, as far as he was concerned at that point, that was the writer done. They'd done the best they could do, and it was not going to get better, saying do a third draft, a fourth draft, a fifth draft. So it was his, his job to then take it and make it work. And now yeah. that just might mean, you know, putting a bit of spicy dialogue in or padding the odd episode out to 25 minutes, you know, by, by writing his famous quarrel scenes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or, or it could be rewriting the thing from scratch. But yeah, like when he talks about hearing that Rob Shearman did, you know, something like 40,000 drafts of Dalek, he just says, how is that a good creative process? You can't get the writer to be better 43 times 
precisely. They've just got to give it up and let someone else take a look eventually. Two is probably enough, yeah. Yeah. So, Dave, the Pertwee era goes on for, for five happy, happy seasons, but then when it comes time for Pertwee to leave, uh, it's time to appoint a new doctor. This is uh, a big moment for any showrunner or any producer, script editor combo, and look at who they got. Tom Baker. Yeah, I'm, I'm th- I was thinking about this earlier today, Rob. Is there a better handover between both the on and off screen teams than there was from the Pertwee Let's Dicks era to the Baker Hinchcliffe Holmes era? I can't think of one. No. No, I, like, I, I really can't. Because all, all, I'm, I'm just running through them in my head and I'm thinking they were either, you know, there was a bit of a acrimony going on or. Or there was just no one there, like in the case of Eric Saywood having walked out and Cartmore comes in to a, uh, a a locked desk, and when he finally opens it up, there's an old wine glass, in, a broken wine glass, <laughs> I think, in the in the drawer with some dried up red wine in it. And yeah, I, I I can't think of one at all that was better than this. This was fantastic. Actually, yeah, this handover. So many stories of producers or script editors coming in and just going, the cupboard was literally bare. Yet Hinchcliffe and Holmes come in and. Dicks and Let's, they've cast Liz, well, Liz Sladen's continuing, they've cast Tom, they've cast Ian. Uh, Terence has written the first story for them. He's uh, commissioned uh, John Lucarotti and um, Terry Nation and mm-hmm. um, Jerry Davis and, you know, commissioned three or four stories to get them going with Daleks and Cyberman and all that excitement stuff. And, and, and you know, I think in some ways Holmes resented a little bit that he was left almost too much and he's like, hang on, hang, hang on. When do, when do I get to make a decision about this stuff? <laughs> but but that whole Tom Baker era, like season 12, is shaped by Terence Dix. Yeah, look, and I think if they didn't do that, Holmes might have been crying in, in the opposite direction, like, oh, they've left me with nothing. So I, I think they did the right thing by doing this. Well, they do, and I think that that's what leaves Robert Holmes the time and space to do something like the Ark in Space, mm. which... You know, John Lucarotti's scripts just completely didn't work and he had to rewrite them basically from scratch and he writes a masterpiece. Could he have done that if he, he was sitting there you know, working the phones going, anybody would run write a Doctor Who story this year? Anybody. <laughs> exactly. Now, this is about the time when Terence starts to get into doing stuff off screen as well. Mm. Now, we'll talk properly about his, his target novels as their own thing shortly, but the, the first target novel written by Terence Dix is Doctor Who and the Order and Invasion, and that is published in January of 74. And in fact, he has two more stories in 74, and then he has uh, four more stories published in 75. So he does transition very seamlessly from script editing Who to writing books. But he also writes some non-fiction books in there as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, many old school fans have very fond memories of the making of Doctor Who in particular, which has two different covers. There's a Pertwee cover and a Baker cover, Yes, uh, if, you, if you're familiar with them. Uh, the Pertwee one's worth a, quite a pretty penny these days, Dave. It is. But again, laying down in black and white, Doctor Who lore. Mm, exactly. And, and I mean, we should say these are the kind of books that have never been seen before. I think... For the uh, the tenth anniversary, the Radio Times did a bit of a Doctor Who special, which had like, you know, commentary on on Doctor Who as a show and such. But there weren't at the time lots of what you would call reference books or or, or books that weren't novelizations of stories and things. They were very thin on the ground. Of course, there's no internet either. There's not really uh, fanzines at this point. 
they're probably coming in the next few years later in the Baker era. Yeah. Uh, there, there's just sort of no information on Doctor Who for for the people at home, you know? So this is this is quite a big thing, this making of Doctor Who book. Yeah, and then a few years later, he does one of my most fondly remembered books of my childhood, and that's K-9 and Other Mechanical Creatures. Did you, did you have that one, Rob? I never had that one, Dave. Uh, it was at the school library, and eventually I got a copy of myself. I can't remember where, but I used to borrow it, you know, once a week almost from the school library and it was just all about Daleks and Cybermen and Servo Robots and, <laughs> and Quarks and K9 and just all these things that as a, as a young boy just excite the imagination and, and mm. Terry Sticks knew exactly what excited the, the young imagination and, and he really tapped into that so much. I need to get my hands on one. I think I'd really enjoy it actually. Yeah, it's just a lovely little piece and and looking at it now it's so simple and so mm-hmm. innocent but it was just robots cool yeah. doctor who robots <laughs> and some might argue that's what doctor who should be again but uh, i digress yes 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 um <laughs> one of the things that really staggers me about terence dix is when i realize he didn't write any scripts with his name on it in the Pertwee era that is interesting actually I'm just trying to think. Let's put his name on a, at least a script or two, didn't he? Uh, he he wrote um, under the demons. Well, he wrote under pseudonyms. Oh, that's um, right. You know, guy Leopold and all that sort of thing. He, yeah, he he co-wrote the demons and Time Monster and Planet of the Spiders, definitely. Mm. Uh, and and he had a role in the Green Death as well, I think. Yes. 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 But no, I don't think with his name on the credits. No, no, no. So you're quite right. Yeah. Um, and, and that's interesting because you think of Dix as being this prolific writer. But, well, well, after the War Games, there actually isn't a story with his name on the credits until Robot. Absolutely. And, of course, uh, Brain and Morbius with a uh, pseudonym. Yes, with a suitably bland <laughs> pseudonym. The, again, the other, the other famous story about him wanting to take his name off it, which I've always thought it says something about his professionalism, that he'd done the job and he knew that when a producer says the script isn't working, change it, and the script editor just has to do it. He, he sort of got that, look, I get what Robert Holmes is doing, and I don't like it. I think my version of the script was better, but that's his job. I'm getting paid a check. Um, mm. <laughs> go go away and do it. But, uh, yeah, I, I often wonder how much of Morbius is Terrence and how much of it is Robert Holmes. Well, we've got to assume it's mostly Holmes for, for him to want his name off it. That's what I've always assumed. Yeah. I, I think a lot of the setup is probably him. And, and probably a certain amount of part one is him. But yeah, there's not a lot of Terence left in there. Mm. Isn't it interesting that he was quite happy to be uh, script edited by a writer he had previously brought on board, whereas in the modern era, Russell didn't want to write under Stephen. You know, and it seems unlikely Stephen or Russell will, will write under our new boy, Chris. Yeah, I think it is a reflection of just the relationships that they had as individuals, I mean, I've never heard anybody in a tell-all interview criticise Terence Dix. No. no. And, and and clearly, as I said, he and Barry Letts were lifetime friends. He and Robert Holmes were clearly lifetime friends as long as Robert Holmes lived. Um, he got on very well with Eric Saywood, for example. Uh, he got on very well with well, John Nathan Turner, and he didn't get on very well, but I think there were other issues at play there. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I mean, it's worth probably talking at this point, Dave, about the concept of Dix as a Tory. 
because that's where people might have disagreements with him. But certainly, no, no one sort of slags him off, as far as I can see. No, and, and look, he was very open that he was somebody who was born in a particular age, and he served in the war, and his his, his family had you know, spent some time as administrators in India. And, and he came from very, not, not you know, ideologically right-wing stuff, but just very establishment, we don't need to change anything, we can just sort of sit here and all get along sort of um Toryism, you know that one nation mm. Toryism. Mm. And, and you know certainly he, he's very open about that and his views on that but it was balanced i think by the very small l liberal views of barry letts yes and and the two of them sort of worked together very very well and even then though terence knew which way the wind was blowing and he'd say okay well the audience wants stronger female characters. That's cool. I'll write some stronger female characters. I'll go and invent Sarah Jane Smith, who's a plucky journalist who knows all about feminism and women's lib. And look, he doesn't always get it right. <laughs> but 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 he's not sitting there going, "I'm just going to write," you know, "I'm just going to write more women who can be peril monkeys." And you know, as he says, their their, their job is to be tra- chained to the train tracks by the villain. He says, okay, we need stronger women. I'll, I'll go out there and I'll give you stronger women. And and Sarah Jane Smith is a stronger woman than Katie Manning, who herself, you know, Joe Grant was not helpless either. No, no, not at all. She was a field agent. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, that that would all come into it. And, and, and he, you know, said, you know, he disagreed, for example, with Bob DeMott Baker and Dave Martin about, you know, their views on colonialism when they were writing The Mutants. But he didn't get in the way. He just said, right, let, let's temper this and make sure that we're not lecturing the audience. We've got message in there and we've got content in there but at the end of the day are we putting out a good fun adventure that will make people tune in next week we need uncle terence leaning over chris chibnall's shoulder i think dave (laughs) (laughs) but he does get to write some stories for the fourth doctor we mentioned robot which i really enjoy Uh, horror fang rock state of decay Mm. great scripts Oh, I mean, Horror of Fang Rock. I, th- I think if we don't talk about this for a, a little while, uh, Rob from 42 to Doomsday will <laughs> spontaneously combust out there at his joint. So let, let's talk about that for a moment. I find very few people who don't like that story. No, likewise. And many of them will have it right up there, very high on their list. And some, you know, I've heard people refer to it as being a template Doctor Who. And how many people die in it, Dave? Talking of death counts and, and things? <laughs> Everybody. Everybody. And Everybody. again, a very yes. successful story. So. Yeah, absolutely. But again, it's this idea of just taking an experienced writer who, yeah, understands Doctor Who law, but hasn't written, but hasn't worked in the office for some years and saying, I want a story, I want it on a lighthouse, go. Yeah. And and just letting this guy create characters, you know, Skinsale and Lady Adelaide and, and Palmerston, you know, really memorable characters that you recognise. And this is what the best writers do. We've said this often. You, rec- you recognise their characters in a few lines, in a few sentences. You instantly know what sort of per- person Lord Palmerdale is. You yeah. instantly know what sort of person Reuben is. To me, the characters in Fang Rock are very Holmesian. Like, if I didn't know who wrote Horror of Fang Rock, I'd assume it was a Robert Holmes script. Like, it might not have the flowery language in places, but the characters are so strong. I, it, it just feels Holmesian to me. Yeah, I agree with that. It, it is a really lovely work. And and let's be honest as well, it's when you get Terran Sticks written and script edited by Holmes, or vice versa, that's a pretty good pair of minds to be working on any script. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and that's why I think it is a shame that we don't get more of it today. I mean, imagine a RTD story script edited by Stephen Moffat. I mean, we got Stephen Moffat script edited by RTD, and they were generally fantastic. Yes. 
and I think it would be the same in reverse. Yeah, I, th- I think it would be. I think there should be more of it. Mm. And, and something that I think leads us from horror fang rock into state of decay is that Terence is also, in my opinion, very across this idea that it should be not educational in a lecturing way, but young children watching Doctor Who should walk away with an appreciation of something, whether it's a person from history or a time in history or a concept or an idea. And you see that in uh, Horror of Fang Rock. You know, he talks about the turn of the century and the, the, the change from gas to electricity and how that was. State of Decay, you get stuff about the continental shift and you know vampire stuff in uh, the Time Warrior, you know, he talks. You know, he, he's talking about not in a really accurate way, but you know, knights and castles and all that sort of mm. thing in Crusades. There's always that little, again, what he calls the boys' book of that that thing that would inspire young people watching the series. Yeah, there, there's always a point to it, and you know, I, I don't want to belabor um, the most recent series of Doctor Who too much, but you look at some of those stories, you think, well, what what was the actual point of that story? What what did I learn? Some of them you learned quite a bit. Some of them were wonderful, but others. I'm not so sure. And the, the first group, I think we both said, were the most successful. Yeah. yeah. Are you a fan of State of Decay, Rob? I don't mind it. I've never been hugely into it, which is interesting, because I, I do like vampires. I do like darker stories. I like the gothic stuff. You know, it has a lot of ingredients that should appeal to me. Um, I, I like the stories of the Time Lords fighting the, the great vampires and all that. It's not quite a classic for me, though, and I've never been able to put my finger up. Maybe we should look at it in detail one day. Maybe I should rewatch it or something, and we can talk about it. But Well, well, when the Series 18 Blu-ray can, comes out. Could be a perfect time. Yeah. Mm. Uh, one other script for the CV show he did write, Rob, that we have to mention. Yes, please. Well, well do you want to take us through this, because it is your Doctor. It, it, it is my Doctor. It is the uh, 20th anniversary special, The Five Doctors. Oh, Dave, this is... I've said this before, this is putting on an old pair of slippers and just enjoying Doctor Who. I mean, when people think of Day of the Doctor and how that celebrated the 50th anniversary, yes, absolutely, wonderful story, but this this is different. This is a simpler story. It's a, you know, just a beautiful thing. And I don't know if it's because of the age I watched it at. You know, I was a, con- a contemporary of the, the episode. I was a young child at the time I saw it and such, but... Oh, I could watch Five Doctors every day of the week and not get bored of it, Dave. I really could. Look, I'm absolutely the same. And again, part of it is because it was such a big part of my childhood. But part of it is, as you said, it just works so well. It is so lovely. And Terence gets all of the characters right. There's, there's no moment where you think, that Doctor wasn't like this. And okay, some of them are a little bit caricatured because they, they need to be quickly in the story and they need to sell what they do and the companions all get a little bit to do and they all get to bond and all the little references you know the Lishaw moment the Captain Yates moment uh, the, the the stuff with Jamie and Zoe is really good and it's the little lines he puts in you know just that casual John Pertwee well I've reversed the polarity of the neutron flow so the TARDIS will be free of the force field or <laughs> that, that that lovely moment where the master's about to threaten the doctor and the brigadier's taps on the shoulder nice to see you again wallop <laughs> it's, oh it's just great it, it is and I'm so glad that he got to write that it is such a celebration and we should say he only got to write it because Robert Holmes couldn't. Yes. Which is very interesting. We've just been praising them both and, oh, aren't they brilliant? Robert Holmes really struggled with it and Terence had to step in. Yeah, and, and I think that as much as I love Robert Holmes, I think that was for the better. This is absolutely something that Terence Dix was built for. Yeah, I think 
the way Holmes rides, he might have tried to push the boat out a bit too far and it just might have fallen into a, a screaming heap, whereas Terence plays it a bit lighter and uh, it just works better. Yeah, absolutely. I think Robert Holmes was really going for a story in its own right that happened to have five doctors in it, mm-hmm. or in his case, six. And Terence Dix just said, okay, I'm just going to have fun. Let's see the first Doctor, Susan, and a Dalek. Let's see Pertwee being menaced by some Cybermen. Let's put in a Rastron Warrior robot. Let's have a, a Yeti for two minutes because, hey, let's just have a Yeti, you know? That's, yep. that's what makes it really fun. Yeah. Oh, it's just brilliant. The whole concept of the death zone on Gallifrey, just being able to bring all these things, bonkers things together in the same space. Genius. Yep, and, and a script that is written with such just light-hearted joy. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and, and, and that ends with that moment. I, I still get, you know, a lump in my throat when I watch Dave. I just turn around and do the whole, you know, when Tegan's doing the whole, so you're just going to go on the run from your own people in a rackety old TARDIS? Why not? After all, that's how it all started. Yeah. And then the music. Yeah. <laughs> ah. It is so good. Yes. Ah, oh, okay. I'm, I might need a cigarette after that, Dave. Well, if we're talking nostalgia, <laughs> let's keep going because we need to talk Target books. Uh, in fact, we need to talk, if you count junior editions, we need to talk 65 Target books. Yes. And, and look, we mentioned him writing these starting off in the, in the mid-70s. And pretty soon he started to, to basically manage the range. I think, though, this was an unofficial sort of thing. He wasn't the official manager, but he just sort of fell into doing it. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, very, very much so. He, he calls himself the uncredited unofficial manager in that the company would say, OK, we've got the rights to these. And he would say, OK, well, look, I know the, you know, I know the writer of that one. So I'll ring him and say, hey, do you want to novelise the Abominable Snowman? No, cool, I'll do it. Or, hey, <laughs> hey, hey, you know... Um, uh, hey, Don Horton, do you want to go and novelise one of your stories? Or, hey, Mac Hulk, do you want to do the Silurians for us? Absolutely, here you go. Somebody else doesn't? Cool, I'll do it. Uh, mm. So he, a lot of the ones he does are the um, Robert Holmes stories, uh, because obviously, famously, Robert Holmes only wrote one and a bit target novels. His first work is The Auton Invasion in 1974. He then does Day of the Daleks and The Abominable Snowman, three very good books. Mm-hmm. Uh, he then kicks on, he does four more in 75, uh, the first of them being one of his own, Giant Robot, but he's then into Pertwee stories that he script-edited, so Three Doctors, Planet of Spiders, Terror of the Autons, mm-hmm. and it's then that he starts to really churn them all out. He does a heap in 76, he starts to really get to novelising a lot of the Pertwees and the Tom Bakers in 77, um, not so much in 78, 79, I think he had other work there. In 1980... He writes 10 books, or at least has 10 books published in mm. 1980. And I think when people talk about the Terence just turning, churning them out books, that's the era we're talking about. Uh, and in there you've got stuff like The Invasion of Time, most of the Key to Time series, Horns of Nymon, and look, famously, Destiny of the Daleks, which um, a friend of mine once described as a book you could finish on a trip to the gents. <laughs> Very true. Yep. And look, we should say this isn't Terence's fault. I mean, the publisher wants these out. The original writers don't want to do it. Terence knows the format and knows he can bang it out better than anyone else. So he just does it. Yeah, they're not bad books. And, and when you actually go back and read them, often they do have lots of just tiny things in there that you didn't realise. People remember the prologue and the epilogue of Pyramids of Mars, for example, and they're really good. There's a prologue I had forgotten in Horns of Nymon. Is there really? Yeah, there's this like three-page prologue where 
Um, it talks about Skodos and the Civil War's ended and all that's left is the military and a few scientists and then this, this strange ship lands and Sol Deed sort of found as this, you know, this lab technician going, oh, you go in there and check it out and he comes <laughs> out with the staff and says, I've spoken with the Nymon and it all sort of goes from there. Like little things like that. I read uh, Invisible Enemy a year ago and mm. in that, like just in the opening chapters, there's all this stuff about how the new empire, Earth Empire works and how... It was expanding and it was expected if you were going to be a space astronaut, you had to do three months at a station on Titan just to, you know, because that's part of your job. Like just little details. These are not bad books. They're, they're light and they're quick. Yeah. But there's still love in them. Yeah. Oh, of course. He is a professional. He just had to churn them out quickly. Yeah. And something like An Unearthly Child. I mean, he t- that, that's the only book he turns out in 1981. And that's a really good book. Um, and then he starts to do, I mean, Inferno's 84. That's a really good book. Oh, look, that's that's one of the ones I remember borrowing from the library and the, the cover, so evocative. Yeah. You know, with the guy transformed there in his white lab coat and, oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah, and, and as we sort of get past about 1983, 84, they get better and better. Warriors of the Deep, a really good book. Caves of Androzani. Uh, Mind of Evil, really good. A Time Monster, for a story that's bit up and down, a great novelization. And then he just starts to bring them home. Ambassadors of Death, Seeds of Death, Will in Space, Space Pirates. I reckon they are all fantastically good novels. Well, I was just going to say with regard to Time Monster, I read that long before I saw the episode. And I'd I'd heard people say, oh, that's a terrible story. My only experience of it was the novel. I was thinking, what what are you talking about? That's a cracking story. That's an amazing story. Yeah, it, it, some of these novels are far better, remember, than the TV stories were. And and yeah. he took the charm, and I'm sure he'd love this, to not have to worry about budget. So Omega's Palace is this wonderful, huge palatial thing with this huge singularity flame. Mm. So, you know, it, it's not a very small set with a bit of pissy smoke you know, rising up. <laughs> like a humidifier or yeah. something. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, and he does that. I mean, look, I've defended the space pirates before, but I get that it's not a great story. The book is really, really good. Mm. Uh, the Wheel in Space is really, really good. And really, really expensive now. Uh, that is true. That is yes. true. <laughs> it's, it's mega expensive. Don't even bother looking for it, people. It's incredibly expensive. So, yeah, I, I mean, he churned out 65 books in 16 years. And that's on top of, again, people go and look him up on Wikipedia, all the other stuff he was actually doing at that time, script editing for TV and writing other things, you yep, know. producing the classic serial, writing other children's books. Yeah. yeah just amazing stuff. Um, but it doesn't end there. No, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, he, he, he goes on. I mean, during the wilderness years, he continues to be associated with Doctor Who. When they get around to doing the Virgin New Adventures, he writes the second one of them, still, in my opinion, one of the best, Ex- uh, Time Worm Exodus. That's a fantastic book. Uh, he writes Blood Harvest, a really good book. And, and and one where, famously, he has a bit of fun occasionally at some of his own little tropes, which, which we maybe need to talk about, because there is that wonderful bit, off-quoted, off where the police sergeant is telling the police inspector about how this blue box suddenly disappeared with a sort of a wheezing groaning sound and the inspector <laughs> says what sort of idiot would come up with a, a description like that <laughs> that's um, great but but yeah i mean these phrases that we remember the wheezing groaning sound uh yes. do you remember what sort of face peter davison had rob uh pleasant and open i believe Dave. <laughs> pleasant and open face yes <laughs> uh, we, we all know that john Pertwee had a shock of white hair um, yeah you know, yeah. that most mysterious traveller through time known as the Doctor. 
for people of a certain age, because I don't know how many people read target novels these days, eh? which is a great shame. These these phrases are just burned into your cortex, you know? There, there's something really familiar and safe when I think back to those opening pages of any Terrence Dicks novel that just start in a familiar way with, with language and phrases that we all come to expect. It really is quite wonderful, quite wonderful and heavily nostalgic. Now, before we move to his work with the BBC books, was there anything else you wanted to say about the Virgin books? Simply that at the time when Exodus particularly came out, I think Terence's reputation wasn't as strong then as it is now because a lot of people did sort of see him as being the guy who just churned out he said, she said novels and they didn't really appreciate some of his Latin earlier work. It was, it, he wasn't knocked, but he wasn't seen as being the best author. And then suddenly it's like he, he delivers Exodus. He's being told, you have no budget, no constraints, no page count limit, write a story. And he mm. creates this wonderful story that expand, spans across time zones and parts of Earth's history and you know, Nuremberg rallies and World War Two and, and zombies and nuclear explosions and wow, <laughs> you know, stuff that you could never do. I mean, even with a $10 million budget, you couldn't make that episode. <laughs> and he, exactly. he does it. Blood Harvest, again, he goes from bootlegger 1930s Chicago to the planet of the vampires there's stuff on Gallifrey huge cast huge ideas and just wonderful stuff but you mentioned Shakedown of course we need to mention he was the script writer for one of those semi-professional semi-amateur productions that was made during the wilderness years and Shakedown came out in 94 from memory and I'm really fond of that it was it was an adventure set in the Doctor Who universe with no Doctor, but uh, there were the Sontarans, there was a Rutan, it had Carol Ann Ford in it, it had Sophie Aldred in it, uh, Jan Chaplin, Brian Croucher from Blake 7 were in it, Michael Wisher was in it, and uh, just this lovely, wonderful story that Terence wrote, and that he then turned into a, a, a um, the middle third of a Virgin New Adventure. Oh, great stuff. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there, Dave. No, he moves on to the BBC books where he writes far more than for the Virgin books uh, because the BBC books were the Eighth Doctor Adventures rather than the the Adventures of the Seventh Doctor. Plus, they also did what are called Past Doctor Adventures, which I guess in the Virgin range were the Missing Adventures. Yes. Under the Past Doctor Adventures, Dix did five in total. He did Catastrophea, Players, Warmonger, Deadly Reunion, which was a team-up with Barry Letts on that novel, and uh, World Game. And for the Eighth Doctor range, the what you would call the main range, he did its first novel, The Eight Doctors, and uh, another one called Endgame, which used characters from the past Doctor Adventure players. So he was even tying together, you know, these new uh, adversaries he created in players and tying them into later stories in the Eighth Doctor range and, and still doing really creative stuff. The Eight Doctors, though, I'll concentrate on because that, that gets kicked around a lot. It is very basic, but to me, if you... If you filmed this, it would be akin to the five Doctors because it's the eighth Doctor sort of zipping through, falling into adventures from the previous seven Doctors and, you know, interacting with himself. And it's just wonderful. You know, yeah, it's hokey, but that's... Five Doctors is hokey, but it's fun and it's comfortable. I find the eight Doctors novel very fun and comfortable too, but it's not a great story. You know, there's a difference. Yeah, I think it's really worth noting that when they came to launch this 
book range in what 1999 i think the eight doctors comes out certainly 88 89 that period Mm. they get a guy who started his work on the show in 1969 yeah who's for a time was just known as that guy that does 124 pages of he said she said and churns them out Mm. and now they're going who do we get to launch our entire range that guy we're getting terence dix yeah well why why not you know? Yeah, and, and, and I agree. I remember reading The Eight Doctors and thinking, okay, it's a little bit, as you say, it's a little bit hokey, but it was a fun adventure and I kind of enjoyed the nostalgia and he was kind of getting us all up to date and getting everybody on the same page. And then I realised that everybody else hated it. And I was like, really? That's, that's like kicking a puppy. Mm, yeah, it's like the other authors looked at it and thought, yeah, okay, we're just going to do our own thing from here. Um, and that was a shame. Yeah, look, it, it has its place, it did its job. And, and I think it was very deliberate to have that light, easy, accessible Eight Doctors. And then they had Kate Orman and John Blum do the Vampire One. Uh, was it Vampire Science, I think it's called? Yeah, Vampire Science, which is a great book. Yeah, which it's is really a great, great book. book. But, but they're, 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 they're very, one's very trad and one's very rad. And that gives you a very good introduction to the range. Yeah, it's chalk and cheese stuff, um, really. But hey, that's what makes Doctor Who interesting sometimes. Yeah, that's right. But he doesn't finish there. No, Dave. What does he do next? He novelises the Sarah Jane Adventures opener, The Invasion of the Bane. Mm -hmm. He writes two of the new series quick read novellas for, Mm -hmm. I think it's for the Matt Smith Doctor. So again, this is somebody who has written in one way or another for the second, third, fourth, fifth, seventh, eighth and eleventh Doctors at least. Yeah, yeah, the ones you're thinking of there are Made of Steel, which was 2007, and Revenge of the Jadoon in 2008. And doesn't that blow your mind? Terence Dix is writing about the Jadoon. Yeah. (laughs) They seem like eras that are so separate, like nothing links those two eras, you know, where Dix was writing and and the Jadoon. But no, he's written a novel about the Jadoon. Well, a quick read novel, at least. Yeah, and it's interesting that he has done that, because I wanted to mention quickly... The, re- the reaction he and Barry Letts had to the telly movie in 96, where oh, yes. they, they famously... Now, it, it's not quite clear whether they sort of, you know, walked out halfway through in protest or, you know, the moment the, the, the credits started, they were like, we're out of here, that was terrible. But they certainly walked out very unhappy with what was done in that. There was a sort of a view that, well, they'd had their day and they didn't want to modernise. But no, when, when given mm. the chance to work on something they do enjoy, Terence is very happy to go and work on new era stuff. Which brings me to um, the, 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 the personal, because I have met Terence. Uh, he came to a convention a few years now in, a, a few years ago now in Australia, and it was kind of wonderful to see him. And he, he was everything you would expect. There was a lovely moment. He, I was sitting in the audience, and the panel was on before me, and then they sort of changed over, and they had this format where Gary Russell was going to interview Terence Dix, and Gary was on stage, and the con manager was sort of starting to get everything done, and before that, Terence Six had just quietly come into the auditorium and sat a couple rows behind me. And he was just sitting there. And uh, one of the minders, you know, just a little sort of 20-year-old minder, the people with volunteers you get at these conventions, went up to him while this was all happening and said, um, uh, Mr. Mr. Dix, uh, you, can, you can go on the stage now. And Terence said to him and said, I will go up when I am announced. There is no rush. 
<laughs> what a gentleman! Yeah, just, just I just thought this is it. This is this is the guy we've all come to see. And you know, he told his old stories and he told his anecdotes. He talked about working in the Troughton era and he talked about working with different people. Yeah, you know, he, he talked about how he, he watched the new series when he could. He liked a lot of it. He didn't like some of it. Um, there was a bit where he said, I, "I hear they've just turned the master into a woman." Oh, I don't like that. And Gary Russell said, "Oh, come on, Terence, don't you think in this day of age, you know, why shouldn't the master be a woman?" And Terence said, "There's no reason. I just don't like it." <laughs> I think we all have relatives like Terence. <laughs> I think we do. But he did get the question, as, as they always do, what's your favourite story? And rather than equivocating or doing what most people do and say, I love them all, he actually gave us his top three. Oh, do you remember them? I do. And, and it was interesting why he picked them. He said, oh, he said look, oh, I can't give you a favour, but I can give you three that mean a lot to me. Mm-hmm. The first is the war games. He said okay. for something that he and Malcolm Hulk just churned out in desperation for it to be so well regarded so many years later he just said that that makes him really proud mm-hmm. uh, he said robot yeah because when he, he says he says when i get to think about the fact that i wrote the first tom baker story and created the fourth doctor's character and set him all up and what a wonderful success and popular doctor he was he said i feel really proud that i started that Oh, bless and he says the five doctors for all the reasons we talked about he says he just really enjoyed Writing that and what what could have been a mess, what could have been a disaster, he feels you know, he's really proud that he thinks you know it was a really lovely story that we regard. So they were they were his favourites. Oh, that's lovely. You know, what we should do in a minute. We should do our own top three or top five Terence stories Ooh. to see how we correspond with that. Oh, good idea, good idea. Um, but look, finally, I did go up and get an autograph from him. And you know, I've met a lot of. Doctor Who actors now. I've met several doctors and a lot of companions and mm. everything, but I've never been more starstruck than standing in front of Terence Dix asking him for an autograph yeah. and, and just thinking how much of my childhood and how much of the best parts and the fondest memories of my childhood were written by this man. Yeah. And I was just absolutely in awe of, uh, of, of, of just having... Terence sticks in front of me. I, I, I can just remember when I was again at primary school and you'd go to the primary school library and I didn't know how, you know, libraries were laid out or anything, but I went to the D's for Doctor Who and right. there, was, there was just a whole bunch of Doctor Who novels. Now, I now know it's because they were under D for dicks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, I, but I just thought, oh, I want Doctor Who, I'll go to the D section and there were just all these books that, yeah. I, that I borrowed and read and loved. Oh, it's lovely. Did you take a Target novel or did you take that copy of Time Frame that you get everyone to sign? I, I took the Time Frame that I got everyone to sign, so yes. Ah, okay. I was going to say, because it would be very hard to choose a Target novel to take. Yeah, that that was a problem as well. And, and look, back in the days when conventions, you know, your, your, your entry ticket got your three free autographs. I would mm-hmm. have done the Time Frame and two books, but... In the age when you've got to pay serious money just for one autograph, it had to be had to be one, sadly. But it, it it's not about the autograph, is it? It's about the moment. Yeah. And and that was a really special moment meeting Terence Dick. Did you get to say anything to him? Like you, you meant a lot to me, or I, I I did. I I was sort of looking for one of those you know words that I could say that sort of was, you know I'm I'm not a really sad loser fan. I'm, I'm you know I've got really intelligent, <laughs> insightful things to say. And no, and then I see I just said look, thank you. Um, I've really enjoyed everything you've written. I really appreciate it. It's the simplest thing to say, and it's the best, I think. Yeah, and and uh, uh, what what a good life to have led. That even when you're you know pushing into your eighties, for people to come up and go, thank you for making my childhood a happier thing. 
Exactly. You know, teaching people to read. I mean, the first proper long-form novel that I ever read was The Dalek Invasion of Earth. Yeah, so many great memories. I don't know what I'd say to him, but I think it would be something similar to that, just something simple and, you know, he's he's probably heard it a million times before, but you just need to say something. Yeah, absolutely. No, it was it was a wonderful moment. One, one of my favourite fandom moments. So, that idea, Dave, our, our top three or top five of things Terence has written? Yep, so I've got, I've got a five. Should we, should we do them all together or should we go back and forth? Oh, yeah, let's go back and forth. All right, well, we'll kick us off then, Rob. Coming in at number one, Dave, The Five Doctors. Snap. <laughs> There's just no way it can't be on the list, let alone at number one. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, fair. That's my number one as well, The Five Doctors, for all the reasons we've already discussed. Okie dokie. Uh, your number two. Horror of Fang Rock. Ah, oh, okay. It is a Not very a good story. Oh, Rob from 42 to Doomsday is going to murder you next time he sees you. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> Uh, it is Jesus. a very good story. It, it made my shortlist, but not quite my five. Okay. Uh, so my number two, Rob, I did go for Time Worm Exodus, which is just one of my favourite books, full stop, never mind favourite Doctor Who books. It is a wonderful story. It's got everything. I've read it many times over the years, probably more than, well, certainly more than I've read any other Doctor Who fiction book. So uh, mm. yeah, Exodus is at number two for me. Fantastic. My number three is Brain of Morbius. Ooh, Go on. Just one of the very, very early stories I remember, possibly through BBC Video back in the 80s. And I can't even remember if it was the horribly edited version or not. Who knows? But it was great anyway. It was just this wonderfully dark, gothic, scary story to me. And I thought it was wonderful. Just wonderful. And I know his name's technically not on it, but you know what I mean. I do, I do. My number three is one that I know won't be a snap roll because of what you've said earlier. And that is State of Decay. Yeah, not a classic for me, but a good story. Yeah, I, I really like it. I like the characters. I like the gothic feel of it. I love the way that the Doctor and Romana worked so well together. I think he writes those characters probably better than almost anybody else. Uh, yeah, I just have a huge fondness and respect for State of Decay. I think it's one of the best things he wrote. Okay. Uh, my number four, I'm going really left field here. The BBC Past Doctor Adventure Players. Oh, I don't know that one. Tell me about it. Okay. Well, I thought you might ask that, so I actually grabbed, grabbed the blurb <laughs> because it's been a while since I, I had read it. And I could have said, look, it's the Sixth Doctor and it's Winston Churchill and the Boer War. And that's about all I remember. But the actual blurb runs like this, Dave. Arriving on the sun-baked veldt in the middle of the Boer War, the Sixth Doctor is involved in the adventures of a struggling politician and war correspondent, Winston Churchill. Of course, he knows Churchill is destined for great things, but unseen forces seem to be interfering with Winston's historic career. The Doctor suspects the hidden hand of the players, mysterious beings who regard human history as little more than a game. With time running out, can the Doctor find the right moves to defeat them? Interesting. I need to check that one out. Mm. And then that, that's what I was mentioning earlier. The players do come back in the uh, Eighth Doctor story end game as well. So he, he sort of ties them into a, a later story too. Oh, okay. I hadn't even heard of that one. Oh, thank you mm. for that. No, it's good fun. And I know you like Churchill, so there yeah, you go. Yeah, yeah. I'm going left field a bit with my number four as well. And, and I'm cheating a little bit because I'm going to have uh, both shake down the telemovie and the new adventure. <laughs> This is, look, Shakespeare is not the best work of literature. Certainly the movie isn't. It? It's, it's, it, it and the book are just, again, really enjoyable. It's Terence taking out the Doctor Who toy box and just having a lot of fun with it. 
mm. it, fun with the Sontarans and with the Rutans, you know, with the Galactic Federation. Uh, he he really gets McCoy's Doctor again. Yeah, you know, he he finds that balance between the impish McCoy and the dark Doctor McCoy, and just writes him really really well. He he gets Benny Summerfield really really well. I just think that's a really fun book. And a, and although the, the Tilly movie isn't perfect, and in, in fact is a little bit trite at times, I just love it to death. Yeah. Coming in at number five for me, this sort of book ends with my first pick being The Five Doctors, and I'm going to throw in The Eighth Doctor Adventure, The Eight Doctors, because it does get panned so much, but I'm going to put it on my top five list here because it is such fun, and it does bookend nicely with Five Doctors. It's just Terence being Terence. I, I appreciate when you say, you know, he came along in the... Um, the virgin adventures and, and wrote things like exodus and and that's amazing shows what an author he can be eighth doctors is maybe a regression in some people's eyes but it's a fun regression and i love it no i'm glad you picked that i think it does deserve more love than it gets for my number five pick i wanted to go with a target novel i had a few options invasion of the daleks space pirates ambassadors of death but i'm going with his novelization of the wheel in space Mm. because I remember reading that as a kid and, and then rereading as an adult and finding the same thing. But but as a kid, it was so evocative. He has a slightly longer page count with that one. So he, he takes the time to talk about the space program and, and there's the adventures on the silver carrier and the servo robot. He, he gets the creepiness of the Cybermen really well. He gets the mm. characters really well. He just takes a story that, look, I like, but I get it's not the best Doctor Who story, and it's not the best Cyberman story, but I like it. But he takes an average okay story and just plays with it in such a fun and effective way. And that's what he does in a lot of his later Doctor Who novels. I mean, the fact that he can make the space pirates, which, look, I like it more than other people, but again, I understand it's not a brilliant story. He takes that to a whole new level. You know, when, when, when he gets the chance, he really does a lot with these books. And so, yeah, Will in Space for me. Lovely. And and look, a runner-up for me would have been the Target novel, The Time Monster, for the reasons I mentioned earlier. It just made a story that everyone seems to hate seem wonderful to me. I couldn't figure out what anyone was on about. Yeah, look, it's it's a really mixed list that we've come out with there, and we've just scraped the surface. It was so hard trying to get that down to five. But what a wonderful contribution. And look, we've just had so much fun talking about it tonight. Oh, well, it's Uncle Terence. How are we not going to talk this long? <laughs> How do you not cover 50 years of involvement in a show? So, Rob, that was our very short discussion about Terence Dix. I remember when we put that out, there were so many people who got in touch with us via social media, friends and listeners and, and, and the like. Mm. And the one thing was very consistent about, oh, you forgot about this bit, or you could have talked more about this bit, or you <laughs> could have done this bit. We said, oh, we, we know there, there's so much Terence we could have talked about. And just smashing in what we did in the time was um seemed like a lot, but we still feel like you know we left out so much so we're, we're very aware of just how much we left out and how big his contribution was and the fact that uh, you know what a bit over an hour conversation left out so much i think just says it all oh without doubt terence could have been the topic of all 12 episodes of the doctor who show this year you know 
his early years, his middle years, his later years, his target novels, his non-Doctor Who work, you know, it just goes on and on. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. And look, for our listeners out there who don't know this, there is one final Terence Dick story that is yet to be published. It's a short story, and it's called Save Yourself. And it will be published uh, next month, actually, in BBC Books' Doctor Who, the Target Storybook. So I think that's a book uh, a lot of people are really looking forward to. Um, I think they're trying to evoke the sort of Target uh, mould of stories there and they're putting out a short storybook. But for Terence to have a story in it at this time of his life and given what's just happened, I think a lot of people may buy it just for that one story, Dave. I think um, so. I certainly will be. Absolutely. Anyway, thanks everyone for listening, especially if you've heard the uh, special before. We just thought it'd be a good thing to get it out there and in people's ears again. And if you haven't heard it before, really pleased you've you've got to hear it. Yep, Terence Dick's definitely a life worth celebrating and you know we're going to miss him.